Again, today is Easter, and uh, it's, this is, I mean, we're talking global, national thing that we're doing as churches right now. All together, I have some friends that are in Kenya right now. They, they, already, they, they, they celebrated Easter hours and hours ago. I mean, they, would, they were already celebrating Easter morning. We have a whole team in Haiti right now that I'm going to be joining with them tomorrow. Uh, they're a little bit ahead of us. They're, they're already well into their Easter preparations and services. Uh, this is a global opportunity at a time we set apart on the calendar where the Church of Christ comes together to celebrate uh, the resurrection of who we claim to be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's what the day is for. And uh, there's some scriptures that I read. It's kind of a tradition for me. I read certain scriptures throughout Holy Week, uh, kind of prepping towards Easter. One of the ones I love, and I'll read it this morning just for us to share together. Uh, I, love, I love this particular passage because it talks about Sunday morning. It's always Sunday morning when I read it. And so let's look at this together uh, as we just celebrate this opportunity together. Early on Sunday morning, that's it. This is us right now. As a new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. It said, suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven and rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the woman. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. And he says, he isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Isn't that awesome? And the traditional Easter phrase coming for you. You ready? Jesus is risen. What's the word? What's it? Say it back. See, I love having some traditional folks in the church this morning. You you got that from church growing up as a kid. Let me fill you everybody else in. So what happens is, is that in the Eastern Orthodox Church many, 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 many moons ago, um, this was a traditional greeting. This wasn't just an Easter thing, although we've, you know, in the Western church, it's been more of an Easter thing. It was a traditional greeting. So Christians would come together as a church, and some would say, Jesus is risen, or he is risen, and they would, the person would respond back and say, he is risen indeed. And there was, you know, weird, like, little three little kiss things happening there, and we don't do that in the Western church, because there's always that creepy guy, Jesus is risen, you know, looking at everybody, you know, <laughs> trying to get a kiss in or something, but that we don't do any of that, right? But it is, it is an amazing thing in our history, in our heritage, uh, that we do say that is an opportunity, just like when we sing and worship, it's an opportunity for us to come into agreement. We come together as a corporate body and agree on this together. So when I say Jesus is risen, you say he is risen. Your mother and grandparents are going to be so proud of you next time you go to their church, and you know what to say when somebody says that, right? So, you know, just... I've decided to kind of bring that into this morning. The reason why is if I don't feel like you're really talking back to me very much today or I feel like you're nodding off and you're trailing off in your thought of what's, you know, what's lunch and what the rest of the day looks like and how much candy's left over from the kids that you want to get into later on, I'm going to say at any point in the message, Jesus is risen, and you're going to say, very good. That's awesome. Well, it is true, and that is a time in which we can agree and, and again, Easter is a, par, a time set on the calendar. I love Easter. Easter is the foundation of our Christian faith. All right? now, the, the Christian faith is not built on a book. I don't know if you guys all know that or not. It, has, it is not built on the, on the writings in a book. It is not built on the teachings of a good man, a prophet, or wise teacher. Our faith, our Christian faith, is foundationally rested on one event, one thing that happened, which is the resurrection of Christ, who was God. 
And that's what the foundation of everything we believe is on. Paul would say in the New Testament that if we don't have the resurrection, we have nothing. Everything else is, everything else is just like, just talk. Everything else is pretty worthless if we don't have the resurrection. And if we wanted to, that could be it. We could celebrate it. We could acknowledge the day. Jesus is risen. Say it again. Right, we're done. Shortest Easter message ever, right? That's all we got to do. Check it off the box. The problem is, is that as I was even preparing for uh, this, just for the last few months, um, I kept coming back to a statement that Jesus made that, that kind of went beyond just an event. It kind of went beyond, this, again, I'm, I love the fact that it's the foundation of our faith, but it went beyond this date on the calendar that we choose to celebrate this event. And that is this, not that he is risen, but that Jesus is the resurrection. And this statement comes from Jesus himself. This is about a little bit before the last week, the Holy Week. You know, we kind of talk about that as a church. Um, this comes right before that. They haven't gone back to Jerusalem yet, so Palm Sunday hasn't happened yet. And, you know, the, all the leading up to his arrest and the Last Supper and, and the crucifixion and resurrection. Before this, right before this, he's heading back through Bethany because he was informed that a friend of his was sick. And they wanted him to come. And he chose not to go. He chose not to go see his friend who was sick. And then his friend died, and Jesus wept. This is the only time you see that in the Scripture where he's like, not the only time, but the time where it's like the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. It has to do with his friend dying. And then he finally does go, but he's, according to them, he's four days too late, right? He's four days in the grave. This is Lazarus. And Jesus shows up, and he, and he, and he talks to, 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 to Lazarus' sisters, and they are so grieving. They're grieving their brother. And Jesus says, don't worry. He's going to be raised to life. And it was almost like Jesus, they responded to him as like, like that southern thing when you respond to people, kind of giving you that condolence thing, like, you know, God closed the door. He opens the window. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? They respond to him like, Jesus, we know. We know he'll be raised again when everyone else is raised, when the saints are raised. It was an Old Testament prophecy. We know that he'll rise again on the, on the final day. And then Jesus goes, no, let me, let me clarify. And this is where the statement comes from to, to, the, to the sisters and to the group. He told her, I am the resurrection and the life. This isn't just, hey, he's going to be raised to life. Jesus is saying, no, 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 I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. These are very strong words that Jesus is kind of just putting right out there. No, no, no. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, I, I, as I was thinking through this verse, as it sat on me for the past few months, you know, Jesus never misspoke. And I'll just say, you know, he never misspoke. He never mixed his words. He wasn't like me. I make up words all the time. Sometimes I don't even intend to. You know, I'll say the wrong word at the wrong time in a message. My life group loves giving me junk about that all the time. What, what, you know, go to, go to life group this week. What did Matt say this time? That's right. So, so you have to understand, in the, there's all through what we're going to talk about today, you have to understand Jesus never misspoke. There, there was a reason he said what he said. And I, I looked at it from kind of the reverse initially. You know what he didn't say is he didn't say, I will be the resurrection. He didn't say, I will be. It wasn't optimistic. It wasn't uh, futuristic in terms of a prophecy. It wasn't a hopeful thing. He didn't say, I might be, which is kind of an uncertain thing. Like, well, maybe if it all goes to plan, you know, if, God, if God's plan goes like it's supposed to, I might be. 
He didn't say, I could be, which is often a phrase of, of conditions, right? Well, I could be the resurrection if you guys would get your act together, right? I could be the resurrection if, it didn't, if, if, if things go to plan and, and I don't mess it up. And he doesn't even say, I have been. You know, Lazarus is not the first person he's going he's gonna to raise from the dead. Not, not, not even by a long shot in terms of his ministry. So, so he, he didn't even mark on the fact that, look, what are you worried about? I've done this trick before. Like he didn't, he didn't throw that out there as kind of a, a been there, I have done it, and I have done it, and I will do it again. He says, no, no, it's not an event. It's not something that I do. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he is using that phrase that so often would be used to describe who God is, not what God does, not what God thinks, not what God can do, but the essence of who he is and his being. Jesus says, I am resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He would say this several times in his ministry. Now, what, what is he doing when he does this? You can't read a verse like this and go, well, he says those who believe in him, uh, you know, you know, are not going to, uh, they're, they're going to live even if they die. And then he goes on to say that if you believe in him and, and you know, and, and are living in him, that you won't even experience death. Now, how can he say that? How can you go through a verse like that and, and, and actually walk away and have some sort of application to your life because it changes everything? And that was part of what Jesus did. Jesus made this statement because he was letting everybody know, look, I'm changing the way things work. I'm, I'm just letting you know, resurrection isn't just going to be a thing that happens. I'm letting you know that I am resurrection, I am life. And I'm going to change what life means, and I'm going to change what death, how death works and what death means. Watch as I raise Lazarus from the dead. So part of this, I've used this phrase before, hopefully you've heard me say this before. Many, many times when I want to understand what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, then the easiest way to do that is to go back and look at the way he lived. Everybody nod your head if you're with me. You want to know what somebody meant by what he said? You got to look at the, the life example. Same thing with Jesus. So you got to go back and look at his life. You got to look at, well, what did he mean? Because all throughout his, especially his last three years of ministry, he is leaving breadcrumbs. He is leaving clues. He is radically telling people the way you think it works is going to change. I'm here to change it all because I am the change. And so he's leaving these clues. So I want to take you through a story that I really do look at. I look at this story, love this story. I think I've only preached it a couple times. Um, but it's a significant story that I believe helps us understand what Jesus meant, when, especially when he uses very specific words to kind of change. I'm changing the way life looks. I'm changing the way, way um, death works because I am the resurrection and the life. This is going to be found in Luke 8. If you want to turn to your Bible and your copy of, of your Bible uh, or on your phone or whatever, I'll put it on the screen for those watching online. And for Luke 8, it's going to be, and we're going to go back and forth between Luke and Mark for the two, account, two gospel accounts of this story. But we're introduced uh, on the scene to Jesus, and we're introduced to two women, all right? Uh, one is young, and one is older or mature, I would say. Um, and we're introduced to these two women, and they're both sick. They're both sick. They're both struggling. And Jesus is going to have some interaction with them. So let's jump into verse 40. And it says, on the other side of the lake... This is Jesus kind of moving around, doing ministry. The crowds welcomed Jesus because they'd been waiting for him. So this is a pretty significant group of people. They're actually anticipating his arrival. 
It says they welcomed him because they were waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, leader of the local synagogue, he came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. Why? It says because his only daughter, his only daughter who was about 12 years old, was dying. And Jesus went with him, and he was surrounded by the crowds. That's important to see. He was surrounded uh, by the crowds. Now, I want you to see here um, that the woman, or let me just stop in a minute. The woman in the crowd, there was a woman in the crowd who suffered for 12 years. This is significant in terms of the time. There's a 12-year-old girl he's going to go see. They were surrounded by crowds. But there's a woman in the crowd who suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Just pause here because this is, we're going to get more information on the woman, more so than the daughter. But these are the two women initially kind of introduced in this story where Jesus is going to go visit. Um, the Jairus, the dad comes and says, would you please come? My daughter's sick. She's dying. And Jesus says, yes, but there's a huge crowd of people there. So they're having to kind of make their way through this crowd to get to where they want to go. Everybody just think Disney World, right? Everybody just think like when you're trying to get to where you need to go, but you're having to move through a mob of people to get there. But then it says in the crowd, there was a woman. And this woman, this woman was, um, well, she's known throughout most of the scripture. You can see little subtitles. She'd be listed as as the woman with the issue of blood. That's how she's known. We don't know her name. We don't get any other information other than the context of her story. And it says she was, you know, she had no cure. Matter of fact, Mark, and I, I like this, Mark gives us a little bit more context as well. It says that she had suffered a great deal from many doctors and over the years had spent everything she had to pay them. But she'd gotten no better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. There's a lot in this part of the story as we begin to see and understand this woman. Let me just walk you through one thing, just as I noticed in this story. And I notice about just the way in which we interpret life. Life is often, uh, life is identified often by our place or position, by our place or position in life, and sometimes it's identified by our problem. So our lives are often conscious, you know, and again, this is kind of easy. Uh, a lot of times our life is identified by uh, our place, I would say our place or position. It could be age, you know, it could be young, immature, uh, teenagers, you know, it could be, um, you know, middle-aged, it could be you're, you're older, you're over the hill, I don't know what you call older people now, geriatric or something, I mean, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways to define, you could, you could be defined by that, your identity could be in the age uh, as you are labeled or kind of dealt with, it could be uh, your position, it could be, uh, you know, you're powerful, you're successful. It could be the kind of career you have that labels you in terms of a position in our culture. Uh, it could be just poor or working poor or working class or double income, no kids, you know, um, or retired. You know, this is, these are all just positions in our culture by which someone can be identified and life can be identified very easily. And there's not good or bad. Understand, I'm not saying this is all good or bad. This is just a way in which we identify things. You even see it in Scripture. They're identified, you know, the young girl's 12. She got, you know, she's young. She shouldn't be dying, obviously. She's got her whole life ahead of her. There's this other woman. And the, the way she's identified is by her problem. And that's the case with us sometimes, too. We can be identified by our problems. We can be identified by our disabilities and by the things we struggle with. Some things that, sometimes they're things that people see and recognize because they're physical. They're disabilities. They're handicaps. Sometimes there are things that don't, aren't seen right away, but they're still the thing we struggle with. It could be a learning disability. They could be, you know, ADHD. It could be, uh, if you're on the spectrum, 
or not. These are things that people will identify you as by the problem you struggle with or by the thing that you're struggling with. It could be a self-inflicted thing. It could be an addiction. It could be um, just bad choices. It could be things that you're dealing with in terms of circumstances. It could be lots of things. There's, there's lots of problems, I think, that, that people can be identified as because, because they become such an overwhelming, um, overwhelming part of our life that they become our identity. And what I find interesting about this woman is that her position and place actually changes because of her problem. Because what we see and we know about this story in terms of the law is that this woman, because of the condition that she was in, because of her disease, this issue of bleeding, this issue of constant bleeding, that based on the law, no one could touch her. So if she had a husband, if she had uh, you know, family, they couldn't touch her. Her husband couldn't express love to her, could not comfort her uh, physically. Uh, children would not have been able to sit on her lap. They wouldn't have been able to embrace her or hug her because that would have made them ceremonially unclean. So, so there, was a, there was immediately you understand that even if she was married, because we don't know, but even if she was married or she had children, you know, that, regardless, this problem, this disease, this illness so identified her, began to change her place and position and began to isolate her. She couldn't have community. She didn't get a small group or a church to be a part of. She couldn't worship at the temple or worship at the synagogue because, again, she couldn't enter those places and sit down without, I know it's a weird thing to say, but without tainting everything from a ceremonially clean situation in terms of their law. Like she couldn't, she couldn't even be in the premises on the premises or in the presence of others without a danger of, of them, you know, being unclean. So she's isolated. She's possibly abandoned. And the other thing that I noticed is that she, at one time, from a position standpoint, she was wealthy, right? At one time, she had resources because Mark begins to tell us, hey, listen, not only did she not find a cure, she spent all that she had over many years, many years, going to doctors and trying to find solutions to problems. And yet, I love the fact that even Mark just says, yeah, not only did she not find the cure, but things got actually worse. And that really does become a place where our problem begins to identify who we are. And that's how she's known. That's how she's seen. That's how she's recognized in this crowd, is she's the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years years. She's isolated. She's cut off from community. She's unclean as far as the whole religion is concerned. There is no connection to God. She can't offer sacrifices on her own behalf. <clears throat> Whatever resources she had at one time, they're all spent. They're all gone. And, and the way I, I read some commentaries, the way I read one of them actually said, the life that she would have had was no more. The life that she would have had was, was no longer. And, as, and according to sort of our, you know, sort of Western fluent, you know, uh, view on things, the life that she did have wasn't much of a life at all. And quite frankly, for a lot of people that we've, you may even know, wasn't even life worth living, to be honest. That's how this woman would have been seen. That's how she would have seen herself in terms of her life. So, What's interesting is that she's going to do something. She's going to do something that is not only against the law, against religious law. She could be stoned for what she's getting ready to do, 
but she surprises the entire crowd. And as it's recorded in the Gospels, she surprises Jesus, which I don't think you can actually do, right? I don't think you can. But the way in which it's recorded, it makes it look like Jesus is surprised, okay? So watch this. Coming up right behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. A couple of places you'd see it might be the hem of his garment. It would be the, out, the, the, the exterior of the robe, this big robe that Jesus would have been wearing. It wasn't even Jesus. It was just the, it was just the garment itself. So as he touched the fringe of his robe, I love this word, read it out loud. Immediately. I love that word. Immediately the bleeding stopped. Immediately. Matter of fact, when you go to Mark, when you see what Mark says, it says immediately the bleeding stopped. She could feel, right? She could feel in her body that she'd been healed of this terrible condition. She could feel it. I don't know about you women are way more in tune with your bodies than men are, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not in tune with my body at all, as you can tell. Uh, but women just have that sense, you know? You guys are way more in tune with what your body's doing. Complex. She could feel it. She could feel in her body that she'd been immediately, immediately, in that very moment, healed. And then Jesus says, who touched me? Who touched me? Now, I have to stop for a minute and just kind of go off on this because I, as I was reading through this, what I felt like God was just kind of impressing on me was just some of the spiritual language we use in our own faith to talk about our relationship with Christ and our relationship with God. Because life, again, talking about how Christ would redefine life, life is experienced through touch, okay? It's experienced through touch, not just expressed through touch, it's experienced through touch. That's how we know we're alive. Think of every movie you've ever seen where somebody walks in and they don't, don't know if somebody's alive. What do they do? They poke them or touch them, right? Go put their fingers on the pulse or something. They touch them. They have to see if they're alive. Like life is expressed and experienced through touch. And it's just a part of how God created it. It's a part of how God designed it. This is, this is a global universal uh, thing. You cannot, even, you cannot even create life without touching someone. Everybody nod your head if you're with me because the kid's in the room. Uh, right? You can't even create life without touching. And to touch and to be touched, guys, is the proof of our reality. Just think about the nature. It's the proof of our reality. It lets us know that we're here and now, that we're not dreams, that we're not illusions, that we're not spirits, that we're not something, you know, that, that what expresses and experiences life is the fact that we can connect, that we can touch each other. We can touch and be touched. I would tell you guys to touch your neighbor, but I have a lot of introverts in here and they just don't like it when I do stuff like that. You know, why well, do I always got to be touched at church? Leave me alone. I can see you. You're alive. <laughs> you know, touch isn't just physical. We know that. Touch, I mean, the synapses go off and we touch or experience touch or have been touched. Um, you know, it changes our emotional state. It changes our mood. It physically changes things in us and it spiritually changes things. As a matter of fact, you know, words of love are, are accompanied by touch for a reason because they express emotion, because they express the heart of one person to another. That's how powerful touch really is. And again, that's why we use these words with spiritual language, in our spiritual language, why we use the word touch, that, you know, that, that God reached down and touched this area of my life, that he embraced me when I was, at, when, when I was, when I was in need of him. 
that we draw close to him or that we are close in our relationship to God, that we walk with him. We use all these words about connection and touch. That's how you sort of know when, you are a, when your friend or your family member is really just a part of a religious system. You know, they show up at church on Easter, you know. You know, if they're, you know they're part of a religious system when it's all about the rules and the guilt and the shame and the ought to's and the shouldn't have's. Versus when you see someone who's been transformed by Christ, who's been touched by Christ, they will use words like that, that I am close to him, that there's a closeness and intimacy, uh, you know, there's a walking and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a connection that exists. It's the reason it's in our language, because it's expressed and it's experienced through touch. And here's Jesus. Who touched me? All my introverts think that Jesus is an introvert now. Ugh, who touched me? Right? Jesus says, who touched me? And I love this because everyone denies it. And Peter says, Master, the whole crowd is pressing against you, which is the easiest way for Peter to go, Jesus, everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? Everybody's touching you. And I love this because these are great words again. Jesus said, no, no, no. Someone, read it out loud. Deliberately. Someone intentionally, someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. I think this is important because, again, well, I'll go to it in a minute. Let's keep going. When the woman realized, okay, this is Jesus talking to the crowd. He makes a pretty big scene over this thing that she was probably sneakily doing. Says the woman realized she couldn't stay hidden. She began to tremble and fell at his feet, or knees in front of him. Why? Because this was against the law. This was a serious problem. And it says the whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been healed and that she'd been immediately healed. And he says, daughter, which I love that word. He said, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Just leave that verse up for a minute because... You know, what's significant about this that I just love is not only, okay, not only has this woman been raised to life in this moment, not only has she been immediately healed and the life that she maybe she once had or the white life that she didn't even realize would ever be possible again was given back to her by the healing power of Christ. Not only does she have that experience in her, but then Jesus speaks back into her the place and position of her life. We already know he's visiting a daughter because we already know Jairus on the scene and we already have that context. But he looks at this unnamed, isolated, abandoned woman and says, daughter, daughter. I don't know if somebody here needs to hear that today. That regardless of your circumstances, there's a place and a position in life when you surrender your life to Christ that you are a son and you are a daughter of him. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well, which I find, again, very interesting that Jesus makes it a point very loud in front of all the people that have been pressing in on him and touching him and rubbing his shoulder and doing all that, that Jesus is walking around with life-giving resurrection power and only one person got it. Only one person got it because only one person was going after it. Which means you could be around Jesus and you can be in his presence and you can be rubbing shoulders with a whole lot of other things on your mind than receiving life and power from him. But she says, he says, your faith has made you well. Go, 
go. So now, this is important. It says, the, while he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He said, I told you, or I told him, your daughter's dead. There's no use in troubling the teacher anymore. Kind of like, look, what, what we had planned is done. He can't, he can't heal her. She's dead. Jesus hears it, of course. When Jesus heard what's happening, he says to Jairus, hey, don't be afraid. Just have faith, and she will be healed. I love that he's still using the words that he used originally. Like, hey, I know you think something's changed, but nothing's changed. I know you think something's changed. I'm telling you, have faith. I'm still coming to do what I told you I was coming to do. He goes on to say, when they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, and the little girl's mother and father. Why? Because you're going to notice here that the house is filled with people. Talk about a direct direct uh, uh, correlation and, and parallel to what was going on with the isolated woman who had a, surrounded by a crowd, but she was isolated. Here's this young girl surrounded by friends and family, probably supporting her, praying for her, comforting her. And this whole place, this whole crowd is weeping and wailing. But he said, he came in and said, stop the weeping, which I love Jesus. I just love to hear that phrase come out of his mouth. Stop crying. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. She isn't dead. She's only sleeping. Okay? Now, we're all guilty of this next part. You ready? It says the crowd laughed. The crowd laughed at him, at Jesus, because they all knew. Right? They all knew she had died. They're like, look, Jesus, they're mocking, they're laughing, they're somewhat scoffing. Jesus, I don't know where you are on the information up to this point, right? I don't know if you're fully aware. Look, we all know that she's dead. We were here. We, I'm sorry that you feel, you're mistaken, Jesus. You're mistaken. She's dead. We know she's dead. And this is the moment where Jesus, again, redefining life, redefining life for the woman that was, that, was, that was just called by her problem, redefining life, getting ready to redefine life for Jairus and his family. He's here to change the way life looks, and he's here to change the way death works. And right here is the moment where he says, look, death is not the end anymore. I don't think Jesus had a hashtag, but if he had a hashtag, it'd be raised to life, mic drop in that moment, right? <laughs> death is not the end. Now, we use the word dead a lot. We use the word dead to talk about all sorts of things that aren't working or not functioning or whatever. The Wi-Fi's dead. The car died on me, you know. We use, we use it to talk about people. Well, they're too far gone or they're, you know, they're, they're out there. We're talking about relationships, you know. That relationship isn't, isn't what it used to be. There's no more life there. It's dead. That marriage is dead. You know, the, the, that person with their sickness is too far gone. Or because of circumstances and decisions, like, that person's dead to me. We use that word a lot in relationships, in context of what's not functioning the way it should be. And yet Jesus is here saying, yeah, death is not the end to anything anymore. That's what he means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, look, there's no marriage, right? There's no marriage. There's no disease. There's no cancer. There's no rejection. There's no betrayal. There is nothing that can stop Jesus from raising to life what he wants to raise to life. Ever. Death is not the end. Now, what does he do? Well, he reaches down. 
He touches the girl, took her by the hand, and he said in a loud voice, which I think is hilarious because he wanted everybody to hear it, all the people who think they know what they know, right? My child, get up. And at that moment, immediately again, her life returned. And she immediately stood up to prove them all wrong. So the purpose of this story, again, to talk through how did Jesus change it all? Why did, what was the deal? When he said, I am the resurrection and the life, I am this. Like, it's not, it's not something I do. It's not something I personally do. It's not something, it's not a magic trick. This is who I am. This is the very core and the state of being of who I am. Jesus would often say things like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. In John 10, he says, look, the thief comes. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have, what's the word? Life. And have it to the full. Have it to the full. See, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, what that meant for you and for me not just for the people that he walked with and talked with as we look at the example in his life history, we understand that when he rose from the grave, when his spirit came to indwell us, that that resurrected king indwells us now. And so when we sing those words that the resurrected king is resurrecting me, that I'm raised to life, I'm raised to this new life with Christ, it is not, it is not just poetry. It is, it is the, the reality of a life that is no longer dead. It's no longer the life we thought it was. It's no longer the life we wished we could have back. It's, it's a new life. It's completely and utterly new. And because he is the resurrection, because he says, I am the resurrection of life, when he indwells us, we wake up every day raised to life. We wake up every day to live with purpose and mission and passion. Because the life of Jesus lives in us. So when's the last time you felt life inside of you? When's the last time? Do you even remember? And part of it is because maybe you are a part of a Christian faith. Maybe you are a part of a, of a, of a church where, where resurrection was an event. It was an event. But resurrection was an event, and the idea that you were saved, the idea that your salvation was this time where you were given a new life, that's fantastic, but you were never taught that Jesus didn't just say, I can resurrect you and give you spiritual life to come to be live with me in heaven one day, you, you know, that I've resurrected myself in order to kind of deal with the problem of sin that I needed to deal with. No, the, 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 the fact that Jesus said, I am the resurrection in life, those who believe in me, even if they, if they, if they die, they will live. Because I am who God says I am that I am. I am now in you. And it is Christ in us that's the hope of glory. It's the Christ in us that's this absolute hope that we talk about here at our church. And maybe you were never told that. Maybe you were never told that this resurrection, this resurrecting life that's in you is an everyday thing. So that you never have to be identified by your place or position in this world, in this culture. And you never have to be identified by the problems or disabilities or struggles you have in life. You are identified as a son and a daughter of God who's been raised to life, not past tense, like just a few seconds ago, and then again, and then again. 
And he said, well, why did he, you know, why did he do this? I love Paul's words in Acts. Paul tells us in Acts that the entire plan, this entire plan from creation through what Christ did for us on the cross and through his resurrection, this whole plan was so that they, the nations, people, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Why? Because he's not that far away from any of us. That just like that woman, just like that woman who would go beyond herself with that, with that little mustard seed of faith and hope that Jesus could heal this thing that nobody else could do anything about, that we would reach out and we would find him because he's not that far away. Why? Because he says, Paul says, because for in him we live, for in him we move. And for in him we have our being. That's what raised to life means. So when is the last time you felt life rise up in you? And maybe, just maybe, you've spent a lot of time, this is just what our culture does, maybe, just maybe, you've spent a lot of time reaching out and trying to grasp and hold on to and cling and find and reach for all the things that our world tells you will solve your problem and will satisfy you. And you have yet to reach out to Him. You have yet to reach out to Him and to experience being raised to life. We celebrate it together today. Jesus is risen. Let's pray together. God, we just take a moment as a church, as a body, to be grateful that you raised us to life. That it, was, that it is an event because it is a big part of our historical understanding of what changed everything. God, the resurrection is, is nothing, God, that we take for granted. But God, there's so much more to it than that. So God, for those that are here today, God, may we just together in our hearts right now, in our own way, just thank you. Just pour out our gratitude to you for bringing the life-giving power and resurrection of your life to us. We thank you for that, God. And God, I know there's probably some that can't personally thank you. They can thank you in general, but they can't personally thank you because that is not what they've personally experienced. They have yet to reach out to you. They have yet to experience your resurrected touch. And if that's you this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to receive that. I want to give you just an opportunity to pray a small prayer, to to, to take a moment to surrender the life you are living, to take on the life that he rose again to give you. If you want to take advantage of that, I'm going to have you pray with me. I'm just right now, while you're still, while you're sitting there, just look at me. Just look up at me. It's okay. I just want to be able to pray for you. And our church is going to pray for you and with you. I want you to say this prayer with me. And our church will just pray it along with you and support you. Jesus, 
I surrender my life to you. Thank you so much for giving me a new life and that you are the resurrection and the life for me. God, I accept your gift of salvation. And as I leave this place today, I walk in the newness of life. Jesus, be with me. Thank you. And all the church says together as we all pray this in Jesus' name, amen.